know you're an imperfect person, and so is everyone else. But you're held to standards because you are an easy target for toxic masculinity, for white supremacy. And you constantly having to decolonize and unlearn everything that's inside of you while simultaneously surviving in a colonized world. And so that's when we have to let go of the fact that people won't meet us where we're at. People don't want to actually fight with what we're putting out. They're going to try and take what we have away from us by making us feel dumb, by making us feel unworthy. But somos chulas, no somos Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weapons to strike a blow against injustice in the world. I'm Tommy Franklin. I'm Andrew Benda. Hey, man. We got ourselves a podcast. Let's do this. Yeah, I didn't think that, you know, I didn't think we would get here this quickly. This started as an idea three, four weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but you know what? We're excited. Our history, that's how we work. Yeah. What I liked about this is we got from the first conversation about this, our excitement started high and it's only ramped up. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and everyone we've told about, I think told this podcast about has been getting more and more has been just encouraging, you know, even when we float people, the general idea or our vague notions of what we want to accomplish, people are getting excited. So I'm glad we we're in the studio now. Yeah, that's, um, out. man, I appreciate, I appreciate, uh, you getting down with me every step of the way, whether we're making movies now we're making a podcast. Um, and you know, the name weapon of choice, uh, it's almost sacred to me. You know, I, I was given a lot of like for my birthday holidays from the age of like six year old, six year olds into my teenage years and aunt who taught, uh, taught, she was a teacher in inner city, Baltimore, and she would send me books. I was adopted and I, uh, I was adopted by a white family. And so all I ever got for my birthday is from this aunt, aunt Gail. Uh, she's down in Florida. She's good. And uh, she's safe. She would send me uh, black history books, things, ways to learn about my cultural and heritage and my roots. And through learning about my culture and heritage, I learned to love to read. But the first book she ever sent me was a book called A Choice of Weapons by Gordon Parks. And it was the autobiography of Gordon Parks, who I, I will stand on saying is, was the first black renaissance man. This guy composed music, played professional basketball, wrote poetry, screenplays, directed films, was a prolific photographer. And he had somewhat of a similar journey. He left the house when he was 14, 15 years old. I left the house when I was 14, 15 years old. And many years later, some of these things would like resonate even more as I learned, as I grew, you know, obviously I read that book when I was seven, eight years old and then lived a life since then. But, you know, he made his way to of all places, Minnesota and St. Paul. And uh, he wanted to have a voice to fight back against poverty, racism, all the things he hated. And, you know, his first weapon 
as we like to call these things, weapon of choice and ways that art can be used to fight back. His weapon was the camera. And he he highlighted the racism, uh, the strife in America in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it took his, you know, it changed his life. It changed my life reading about it in his autobiography and including his poetry many years later and uh, a lot of the other things he was able to accomplish. So, uh, you know, I've always wanted to, I've always said, like, if I accomplished like a hundredth, one one hundredth of the things that Gordon Parks accomplished in a much tougher time, then I feel like I'll be that I'll be considered a success by my own standards. So I am definitely dedicating this podcast to my aunt who put that book in my hands to Gordon Parks. And he's just an all time hero of mine. And uh, I know that, uh, you know, beyond that, many artists inspire me based on how they use their art to uh, have a, a real powerful voice in standing up and resisting and you know fighting back against a lot of the things we'll be talking to many of our artists guests that we'll be having on the show so you know for everyone that knows that that title is you know we we definitely love the title we obviously the autobiography was a choice of weapons and the name of the podcast is weapon of choice we feel like that is a, a good way to start off the, these conversations and how we dig deeper into uh, ways that people use their art to really ignite a fury of uh, different thinking and, you know, ways to uh, uh, gain perspectives out of left field. So, uh, yeah, that's that's where we are. Andrew, I don't even know if I told you that much about where I got this idea. And Thanks for sharing that, Tommy. And we've got a great first episode for y'all because last night, Friday night, we sat down with Bye Bye Political Punk Band, Downtown Boys, on their Minneapolis stop of the North American tour they're on, and we are delighted to have them as our first guest of our first season. I will go as far as to say that no band of any genre in recent times provide as much of an artistic consciousness and nuance to the issues of today. Yeah, and you're going to love this interview. We caught up with them after their raucous set at the Triple Rock Social Club. They were tired after performing on stage, and they said they only had 30 minutes, but they did not disappoint. Mm, all right, let's get into Downtown Boys. Let's roll it. But the decision around DACA, which was a decision by a fascist white man who has wielded power and inheritance in order to be in his position, and it's an issue of capitalism as much as racism. And it was a decision that had nothing to do with economics. It had nothing to do with wanting real immigration justice in this country. It only had to do with white supremacy and trying to advance white power. And it's a decision that already was going to be really big in people's minds because right now we live in a society where we use a false morality. Who's a good immigrant? Who's a bad immigrant? Who's the system? Who has to leave? And we somehow think that we can decide one by one about millions and millions of people who have been forced outside of any moral decision to come to this country. It is institutional. But nevertheless, about one million DACA recipients are affected. And everyone in this room probably knows at least one person or they themselves are affected. Yeah. And you have until October 5th to renew your DACA paperwork. And to tell anyone you even suspect might need to know that, to know that. And that there is a lot of information about new restrictions, further steps towards ever all of us feeling free. 
And so how, what do we do so that a wall is just a wall and nothing more at all? Joey Francesco, play guitar in Downtown Boys. My name is Victoria Ruiz and I'm the vocalist in Downtown Boys. My name is Jody George and I play the saxophone in Downtown Boys. All right, so yeah, you know, thanks for spending this time with us. Uh, we'll, we'll get right into it because uh, we're, we're damn excited to have Downtown Boys with us. Um, first question to either one of you or both of you, how is your music a weapon and what are you fighting? Um... I think that our music is um, a weapon because it picks a side um, in the way that we, in the things that we say and in what we're about. Um, and I think that because it picks such a strong side, it gets really confusing when we end up playing like big festivals or we end up having a booker or we end up being on sub pop and like we kind of break away from these like puritan sort of punk principles um and i think the insecurity of knowing whether we're doing it right in the long run or whether we're making all the right decisions um but believing in it so much and believing in what we're saying and like doing as a band and as people um is why it becomes weaponized because it's not neutral it's not like it's not like a lot of sort of educational materials that you see in in the world where they're incredible and great and there's no questions asked because no one's questioning their accessibility once you start questioning their accessibility then they become more politicized and i think we've always worked really hard to try and make the music as accessible as possible um, and that's pushed it out of a neutral space because we end up having to hold like a lot of contradictions. Great. Um, and so you, you kind of mentioned some of that, uh, those obstacles like gigs, having created a niche within a niche within a niche, you know, like bye bye political punk. Does it feel like a weight you carry when trying to book gigs and elevate your passions and work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a there's a certain expectation put on what we end up producing because of this genre we kind of get put in and the certain community we kind of put in. And, you know, in some respects, that's good, right? Like, people should try to hold people accountable who have some kind of power in their community at the same time. Like, the music press just holds us and what we're doing to a different standard than they're going to be holding other people. And so don't give us the same leeway to, like, experiment musically Mm. or to, like, be artists that, you know, other artists just get kind of off the bat. And I think that's true of anyone who's... um, creating political work and particularly people artists who are people of color who are creating political work um like you can go back and see like when you know mia was first coming out and the kind of like just really intense like bizarre scrutiny that the media was putting her under to kind of explain herself and Mm -hmm. to kind of question her even her origins and like you know who is was her father really who she's saying that he is and like is she really authentic and i remember like a new york times piece where they're like kind of critiquing her for ordering like french fries with truffle oil and we're like you know 
she can't really be real if she's ordering these like fancy french fries and it's like that kind of bullshit and it's just like others don't get held up to that kind of same kind of scrutiny and if you're like an artist who's upholding the status quo you don't get held up to that scrutiny but the second you you know try to say something with kind of, some kind of content or even be honest about who you are and where you're coming from you get held up to the flame in a different kind of way and I think wow. our band has experienced that uh, yeah. really intensely, and so it can be a difficult thing. But I think you know that's that's true, regardless of your vocation. If you're speaking a kind of truth, or if you're coming from a certain background, um, so you know we've seen it reflected in the music scene. Mm. Can I just follow up on that? So um, talking about scrutiny, and I guess my question is, how have you guys figured out how to navigate that? Um, while keeping you know the message and and your music about what it is, um, maybe ha- being held to that higher standard, yeah. How do you navigate that scrutiny and and still come out and you know not go crazy from it? Or I think like um, like Tom Morello said this thing the other day where he was like, selling out is when you um, stop doing what you believe in, mm-hmm. and like I don't think we've ever done anything that we don't believe in hell yeah um and i think that anytime that we've been in a position to where we're asked to do something that we're that we don't believe in 100 percent, we don't do it and so um i don't think we're opportunists i think that we think yeah. through our decisions and like we understand the power dynamics that we're in we know that like uh, we know who we are and like what we've done. And if other people don't want to read us for what's real and what the truth is, that's not the first time that people haven't been read for what's real and what the truth is. Like that happens in every aspect of society. And so, um, like I see it with you know a lot of my white peers, especially like my white female peers. It's like they get paid more. They like. When they do the same things that I do, it's seen as stirring the pot. But like when I do it, it's seen as like maybe selling out or you know what I mean? Like those types of things. But those things are all just kind of like reflections and like I think projections of people who don't feel comfortable about themselves and who have like a lot of self-hatred and need to project that onto me. (coughs) But what's real is like we've always used our music and the show space as like a protest space. And so, you know, even like when we play in our in Providence in our hometown, it's like Providence is a really small city. The shows like a good show means like three hundred people. Like that's like an incredible show that like the be- you know, mm-hmm. the best gets that. And we work really, 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 really hard to get as many people there and like always integrate community organizations and like anti you know, anti police brutality, like anti-racist organizations and um we've tried that out a little bit like when we've played south by southwest this year working against like an immigration clause that they were having artists um basically forcing us to sign um and then we worked against it when we played coachella so i think like you know we'll continue to use like the show space as a protest space Mm. and because that's like what we believe in then it's okay if people like misinterpret mm-hmm. or misread because I know the reasons they're doing that are outside of music. It has to do with like racism and classism. Wow, wow. Do you feel like that scrutiny comes from like 
other people with within the quote unquote movement more so or or also like from all sides or mostly just from outside I think it's from all sides because yeah. all those power dynamics will get projected wherever you are yeah so like whether you're a musician or you're a restaurant worker or you're an organizer like all of those power dynamics come into play there's no pure or perfect space especially there's no like pure perfect space to fight power even like every good like leader that we can probably name is like rife with contradictions like mlk or malcolm or the black panther party or the like the chicano farm workers movement like there are there were so many contradictions in there but that doesn't mean that those movements and people involved aren't our heroes and aren't valid did you have anything down? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh. Um, next question was, you know, um, something that a, a segment that Tommy and I talk about for this show is uh, showing up. Um, and we wanted to just ask you guys, how does the phrase showing up, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think of when you think of that in terms of acts of protest, acts of justice? Um, and how does it relate to the decolonization from everything, from festivals, like you said, like Coachella, all the way down to... The, the nitty-gritty of the DIY scene um, and how has in particular whiteness been a barrier and also we're, we're interested in hearing about what other barriers are out there I mean showing up is like I think means so many things because it's like dependent on your own power and it's like really dependent on like how much you can trust and be trusted and like I think especially for like you know, people like us where the lines between our private and our public get so blurry. Like, it's like, I just don't see the same demand on, like, white artists to have to be so, like, to force their private life into the public realm. Like, mm. at every level of the game, from, like, the grungiest basement punk scenes that we've played in to like, you know, the festival circuit or like bigger media at every level of the game, like white artists and especially men just like are not like white men in particular are just like not forced to put themselves out there as much. And you get to they get to somehow pick and choose like when they want to be personal and private. And then, um, you know, when they want to do the pitchfork interview or do the um five minute long intro to their song or whatever <laughs> you know it might be and so i think like that that's just showing up has to, a lot to do with like what you're one able to do but then like how much you want to do it because like there are a lot of parasites out there and they'll totally try and take your energy you know and that's the whole thing and like but the people who are in it for the right reasons they're going to push you to put your energy out there in a real way. Um, and I think one of the big barriers, you know, outside of the things we've already mentioned, like race and class and gender and sexuality, one of the big barriers can honestly be, like, the Internet and people thinking that, like, that's a space for true, like, accountability or transparency. It's just, like, so much of, like, social media is handcrafted and like you only see what the person chooses to see. Right, right. And so we like silence all of our agency by thinking that that's like a public court for 
um, justice. It's not. It can be a tool, just like the march can be a tool or the courtroom can be a tool or whatever. It can be a, t- it can be a tool, but it is not like the public court. And so I think that that's been mm-hmm. a big barrier. Yeah, with, with, you know, you talk about the Internet and, like, what faces of each individual we see online. And then even, like, like parasitic elements show up, per se, in a lot of ways. And so, like, the notion out there in the movement that y'all have worked in, obviously, and continue to, that notion of, quote, unquote, bringing our whole selves to our work, do you think that's generally practiced or even practical? And how much of yourselves do you leave on a song or on stage? I mean, I think we put a lot into our work. I think while it's not, you know, written down in a mission statement that we wouldn't feel comfortable doing anything that we didn't feel was completely honest and coming from, like, a direct personal experience, um, which I think a lot of music is moving towards now. I think in the, um, like, first in the early 2000s you saw a lot of kind of ironic distance in music and it's morphed in some spaces into kind of a a nihilism and i think we've always felt that to be uh just like not genuine and in and dishonest in a lot of ways and so when we're writing songs and when we're performing i think we definitely come at it with our full selves which is a very like vulnerable taxing thing to do um and i think maybe that's not fully appreciated sometimes but to like go on stage and to to you know say these things and to like perform these songs that are coming from such a a kind of a heavy place and to perform them fully you know is a really you know hyper vulnerable thing and a really taxing thing and a really exhausting thing and so you know when we're on these tours for a couple months at a time you know it's great in a lot of ways and we get to do a lot of things and you know it's a it's a you know privileged work in many respects but it's also very extraordinarily difficult work uh emotionally and physically to to get out there Mm -hmm. and do that as is you know any kind of organizing work um, by nature, if you're trying to do something where you're like making connections to other people and kind of trying to break down all of the like barriers of individualism and all these um, walls of oppression to like make a connection with someone to then try to get together to like fight something. It's like extraordinarily difficult work. And it's why so many people like burn out on that kind of work and like whatever vocation you're in, if you're trying to do that, it's, it is very difficult. Um, and I guess, you know, theoretically, yeah, you gotta like maybe not bring your whole self and like have some kind of coping mechanism and like have some kind of like space for yourself to be healthy and these things like that. But in these kind of like situations of emergency as we're in right now, and it increasingly seems like we're always in, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to form those boundaries or even to like have the privilege to form those boundaries. Um, 
like yes we should have them but yeah you know mm. it becomes increasingly difficult to do that when you're in certain positions mm-hmm. i i want to ask a couple of questions about i'm enough i'm enough i want more my favorite song on this latest album and you know you talked a little bit about like some people having the privilege to choose when to show up and but like you know on a personal level um like for instance the lyric as if it were a choice is in that song you know, talk about not having a choice, how it contrasts to people in your social circles as you came of age in your life and how you want not having a choice to resonate for people who listen to your songs. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, choices are like dependent on like where you how free you are. And I think that like if you experience inequality and inequity, like in a deeper way, like you're gonna have less choices. Um, and I think especially, I mean, it's not it's not specific to music, but like so many people, like especially people who come into like a punk scene or into a music scene trying to like, or an organizing scene also especially, or a poor neighborhood, low income neighborhood, working class neighborhood. And they come into these spaces wanting to shed like, their inheritance and their privilege they want to shed like their ancestry and they want to somehow feel closer to people that they know like their power in the world is actively repressing or oppressing like we'll try and put this demand on you um and again it's not just music i think it's everywhere it's almost like in the service industry like where they like your your waiter or your waitress is supposed to be friendly and nice and make you feel good about yourself they put that same demand i think on a lot of people of color a lot of activists a lot of um like people who are trying to be there for others and it's not actually any type of real accountability it's not any type of real community it's the same thing of like, I want you to make me feel welcome. I want you to give me your hospitality. Like mm. it's a demand for you to be a host. And <clears throat> I think that that's kind of like, you know, one of one of the biggest things that when you think of a choice, it's just like, do I even, like, do I even have a choice to be the host or not? Because ultimately I really want to fight and I really want to like represent and I want to like show up and be out here. So I have to understand that like some people are going to try to use me as the host, but then there are a lot of other people who are doing the same thing and like are probably feeling the same feeling. And so you do it for mm-hmm. that collective power, you know, and collective power is, is never going to be, it's never going to be all inclusive. So you're always going to have to deal with like resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that other line, obviously I love a lot of that song, but you don't know me, but I know you. I felt like you were talking to old white men, politicians, white supremacists. Exactly. But I could be, oh, so that answers it? Am I right? Yes. All right, well, moving on. It's, it's, that's exactly, exactly right. All right. Um, you know, uh one thing that I want, another thing that we wanted to ask is, what do you guys think, or what do you feel is the, the, you know, is there a political mandate to art, whether it be music, whether it be, um, you know, current times, maybe shining a, a more 
um, acute light on that, but in general, you know, what's the, is there a political mandate to our? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, again, whatever job you do, you can approach it from a set of angles, and those angles are profoundly uh, impacted by where you're coming from a class position, you know, racial position, etc. And so, you know, I, we, we've all worked so many different jobs. It's like we worked at a hotel for a while, and it's like, okay, you work in a hotel, you do this set of things, and then you can choose if you're going to, like, organize with your coworkers to demand certain other things. I've worked in a museum, and it's like you can choose to, as you're working in a museum, you know, you have a set of things you have to say to visitors at the museum. Do you also try to you know, push it further and get a certain message into the narrative in addition to what you have to be doing. So as musicians, you know, there's obviously a set of work that we have to do as musicians. And then, you know, from that standpoint, you can then think, how can we then push this further than what, you know, this requisite job is, is, is forcing us to do. And I think that can take many different forms. It doesn't just take the form of our band. Like, we listen to all sorts of music um, that may not inherently sound as, like, political, might not be as, like, have as many slogans. Um, and, you know, even with our new record, I think we were trying to push push it a little bit, get more subtle, um, think a bit more how we can, uh, you know, t- talk about the political and talk about the personal in a way that is maybe not as obviously literal all the time. But, you know, we listen to, like, you know, Bruce Springsteen a lot in the van, who maybe some people might even interpret as being reactionary or conservative in certain respects as they're not really listening to the lyrics, but is intensely political even in how he talks about the personal experience of like growing up in this country and the same can be said of like a lot of the like jazz music we listen to you know if you're listening to like charles mingus or something you know he's not usually saying like you know fuck the police fuck governor faubus but he is saying through the music, you know, what he's conveying and the personal experience he's conveying and the kind of collective experience he's conveying has, like, a very deep impact. And so he's working with, like, within the medium, which that was his job, he's a worker into, to push it as far as he could. And I think, again, it's like whatever vocation you're in, you can do that. And, you know, that's, like, what our task is. so we clearly need that. Why, like, why emotionally do we need that? Do you think? Why emotionally do we need that? I mean, I think, yeah. Like that push, or yeah, like what? What in you know, listening to that music, hearing that, you know, as people that are creating it, but also listening to it, what is that? You know, we talk about like. How does it help us recharge? Yeah. But You're a saxophonist, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. and yeah. all. I'm Joe, the saxophonist. Um, yeah, I think, like, emotionally it has that, like you said, kind of, did you say the words recharge? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at our shows we come at it, you know, a lot of times we come at performing as a form of catharsis for 
uh, us in some ways, and the audience may come to that as well. Um, so like there's an emotional function there. Um, like in a show, in a concert setting, it's like a there's a collective experience that's like a collective emotional experience that's being had that can be um, used to kind of take you outside of the space you're in and imagine this collective plane uh, kind of greater than the, the tiny world you're living in. So it's kind of kind of a way to imagine a spaceship for us all to go to uh, outside of the, um, the drudgery of uh, daily experience. What is some artist that you're listening to or watching that is like give, like recharging you today? Uh, I've been real into uh, Buffy St. Marie. I saw her perform a few weeks ago, which is uh, very inspiring. I've been really into this band called Algiers that came out with a record called The, Under, um, the Underside of Power. And their music, but also their writing and just their presence is very inspiring. I already talked about her, but we're seeing her in two days, which is really exciting. But MIA, I know she's like famous, but she's just got put through like so much shit and continues to make music and continues not to like give a fuck and like make important work. And so she's super inspiring. Downtown Boys is is the weapon, the voice for a voice for justice. How do you sharpen that voice? How do you sharpen that weapon? I mean, I think that it it can't the edge can't get blunted if like we don't let it. And I think that because we believe in each other so much and we believe in who we are, like our failures and mm -hmm. our shortcomings end up like sharpening the edge even more because you want to like you want to keep fighting and want to keep trying yeah. is, is there any specific example you're, you're thinking of when you say that or I mean like you know I think one of the big ones like I feel because your questions have been so good like the band's gone through so many members like so many lineups mm. and I think it's because it's like really rare and hard to be able to be in like a band that's kind of like your job but you're never going to make a ton of money you know you're never going to make a ton of like material resources and you're going to have to deal all the time with like being kind of in this like public eye at any level whether you're in the basement you know or you're on a giant stage and that scrutiny it has, it's like, it can be really painful, you know? Because especially if you're someone who experiences that scrutiny outside of the band space, you know? Um, and then the, on the other side of it, I think we've had members who were like, I don't, I don't have to sit in a van for eight hours a day. Like, mm -hmm. I can make an impact through other ways. And so, you know, it's kind of like, I wonder if we did live in a more like socialist economy where there was we had more collective power as artists as workers then perhaps like more people would be trying to do this so it's not it's a shortcoming not so much of the band but just of like the arts and like mm. creativity yeah you know, 
high on my list of life's regrets is not like being able to speak several languages. But what might top the list is not being able to play, say, the trumpet so that my friends can hit me up and invite me to go quit another friend's job at a hotel. So I just want to thank y'all for that. It's not too late. <laughs> All right, everybody, uh, uh, if, if, you, if you know, get on YouTube, I urge you, uh, YouTube this video, Joey quits his job. Joey or is it quits. Joey quits? Yeah. Joey, Joey quits. quits. Trust me, it's about five million and five plus million viewers. Joey quits on YouTube. You will not be disappointed and you will be inspired. And I just want to thank uh, Andrew and I would love to thank Downtown Boys for you know, they came into Minneapolis tonight and uh, short notice, I hit them up last night, maybe at 11 o'clock at night. And they're sitting down with us in the green room here at the Triple Rock Club in Minneapolis. And we're just so grateful to have them with us and talking to us. And we hope we can take this, their message to uh, continue to take that to the streets and inspire folks to make art, make love and give a fuck about politics. So thank you, Downtown Boys. Thank you all. That was awesome. Hey, I can't believe in such short notice we got that to happen. Wow. I mean, they were amazing. And they had just played a show. That's what I, I can't get enough of that. You know, something that you can't see in podcast land is that they were tired. They had just been on stage the whole night uh, and they were sharp. I mean, we could have gone for hours. And Yeah, I wanted to. I mean, I, if, I'll hope we, I wish we'd have forgot time. And it would have went two hours, but I mean, I, I feel like, uh, and you know, just, they felt like, they also felt like friends after like Victoria, you know, <laughs> we were just so grateful that they sat down yeah. with us and Victoria is like chatting us up after. And I feel like, yeah, I mean, what do you, th- what are you thinking, Andrew? I'm thinking we got to get a downtown boys part two. Part two. I mean, shit, we can, what, what if, what if we open up season two with downtown boys, make it a tradition. Maybe it could happen. And we want to always leave you with a couple of questions for those artists out there. If any artists are tuned in today or any episode, I want, I want you to let us know. For any artists out there, what is your weapon of choice? We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to maybe have you on the show. Uh, we'd love to go deep with as many people as we can. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about, like, we also use art as, uh, you know, some coping and some survival, which is real, like, and we embrace that. So to all of you out there, let us know. Email us, email us, weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com, weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com to let us know what art is helping you survive today, what art has helped you survive, and what art will continue to help you survive. And uh, we'd appreciate all that feedback. Uh, It's been an honor having a conversation, you know, over these microphones with my man Andrew Benda across from me. And uh, hey, Andrew, you wanna take us out? This is a blast. This is great. Uh, something that I want, one thing I wanna touch on is I'm excited today because for a lot of reasons, uh, this podcast, this conversation, but something that you guys don't know that Tommy and I know is that we already have a whole bag of guests that have agreed. We're just setting the dates. Um, and the list is truly inspiring. I am getting like I can't believe that we're uh, we'll have the privilege of letting these people come on, give them a podium to tell us, uh, you know, what their weapons are, uh, you know, the battles they're fighting. 
Um, you are not going to want to miss the people that we're talking to. They are making change in their community and art is their, art is their, their vehicle for that. Um, you know, just something to highlight. We have already lined up musicians. We have uh, choreo- dance choreographers. We've got painters. Um, we are going all over to talk to people about how they are, how they are making big and small um, impacts in activism. So yeah, I am. I'm thrilled by just the lineup that Tommy and I. You know, we've been we. When Tommy told me he had this idea uh, four weeks ago, it it fired me up, and already um, I, I continue to be ecstatic about the people that we're we're gonna get the opportunity to talk to. Yeah, uh, and yeah, Andrew said it all. I just want to give a quick shout out because in our headphones we got like background music. So we can just like feel more comfortable and relaxed uh, while we're, you know, I guess publicly speaking, which is, you know, something we're not used to necessarily. In the background, we've been rocking to some awesome, beautiful music and you're going to hear more of it. Trust me. But Renee Copeland, right out of here, Minneapolis, she's a ridiculously multifaceted artist and just even across genres and with her voice and her talent with instruments, singing, arranging music. Uh, we've been jamming out to Renee Copeland this whole time we've been talking to y'all. We've just and, been streaming uh, her SoundCloud. Yeah, yeah, SoundCloud, Renee Copeland. R-E-N-E-E is the first name. Copeland, C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D. And one day, Ray, Renee hopefully will be on the show to talk about that L-A-N-D and a whole lot more. So... Hey, everybody, we want to make sure that uh, we're hearing from you as well. If you have any feedback, any recommendations for artists you think we should sit down with or any questions, you can hit us up at our Gmail, weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. And be sure to like our Facebook page, Weapon of Choice Podcast, and to follow us on Instagram at Weapon of Choice Podcast. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We, hey, we've got some great music from our artist and friend, Renee Copeland. Thanks, Renee. That's going to play us out. Keep tuning in, everybody. My future's so bright, but I lost my shades. But that's all right, because you've been throwing up for days. My love is so hype, got them bouncers at the door. Gonna tell me if your heart is real, that's for sure My future's so bright, but I lost my shades But that's alright, cause you've been throwing it for days My love is so hype, got them bouncers at the door Gonna tell me if your heart is real, that's for sure My future's so bright, but I lost my shades But that's alright, cause you've been throwing it for days My love is so hot, got the bouncers at the door Gonna tell me if your heart is real, that's for sure